If part of your DNA is helping others, you're guaranteed success. It doesn't matter what field you're in. If that's part of your makeup, you will be more successful in your field than you can ever dream of. That's the one thing that I've learned. The second thing is that you can teach that. People watch when you're doing things, particularly if you're in the arts world. They're watching you. You don't have to teach a child kindness. You only need to be kind. And maybe their brother and sister sees it. Maybe they like it. And maybe their parents see it and they like it. Maybe they duplicate that. Maybe the community sees it. Maybe the nation sees it. I'm Peter McCulley. Tom Jackson is an actor, musician, activist, and philanthropist. He's an ambassador for the Red Cross and a companion of the Order of Canada. We caught up to him on a recent stop on Vancouver Island. Tom Jackson on this edition of Today in BC. It's great to meet you, Tom. Very nice to meet you too, Peter. You were born on One Arrow First Nations in Saskatchewan, and I understand your early years were growing up around Air Force bases. True. My father was in the Army during the Second World War, and he joined the CNR after the war, and then he liked the services enough that he decided to go back and he joined the Air Force. So we were stationed on different bases throughout Canada, but mostly spent time in a place called Lancaster Park, which was just north of Edmonton. So pretty much we were the only people of color in that area. My dad was English, so he wasn't colored. My mom was Cree, and I had a sister. Her name is Marlene. Your first love was music. How did you become interested in singing? I take it this was at a young age? Because we were living on the airbase, and I had a, a friend of mine, his name was Bob Cameron, and Bob's dad bought me a guitar because my relations on my mom's side mostly, they were all musicians, and they would come over on Saturday nights and play in the living room. So my friend Bob Cameron's dad bought me a guitar, and I started to play it. I don't know that I really had an interest in writing songs or even singing, except you have to do something. And in those days, it was enough to just play a little bit. There were bands that were just musicians. They didn't sing. They only played. And I never really thought of singing until, I think maybe when I moved to Manitoba, because my dad retired. We had enough time to, to retire from the services. And they asked him, where would you like to go as a retirement? So they stationed him where he went, and he decided Winnipeg. So I got there, and I'm the folk era. And you listen to people like Paul Simon, Paul Dylan, Chris Christopherson, people like that. And I realized that there was a real vehicle there if you wanted to say something. But for the most part, I was singing other people's tunes. And it was Rick Newfeld. We were talking about Rick Newfeld. For everybody who wasn't here for that moment, <laughs> That's right. Rick Newfeld is a bus driver, but he used to be a guy who'd drive tour bus for bands. And he was this great musician. He had a song called Moody Manitoba Morning, for all of those who know that. He also had a song called Highway Child, which he thinks is the best song on the planet. But either way, I think he's the most prolific writer that ever came out of Manitoba. And he became my friend. And he said, you ever heard of this song called The Renegade? And I said, no. And he said, well, it's an Ian Tyson song, bless his soul. And so he showed it to me. And I learned it because I was playing around a very small little folk circuit and a very small repertoire. So other than the other three songs I knew, I learned Renegade. And if you get a chance, you got to go and check it out. Because the relevance of all that was, in 1972, 
there was a big festival out in Montreal, and it was a festival designed to raise money f- for lawyers to get an injunction against the James Bay Hydroelectric Project. And there were others involved. Charlebois was there. Ian Tyson was there. Neil Young was there. It's part of the Mariposa Festival. Joni Mitchell was there. So anyway, you got the picture. So I was about to go on stage, and Ian Tyson was going on stage before me. But I only had four songs. <laughs> and one of them was One of them was Renegade. <laughs> so I had to go up to him. I said, Mr. Tyson, I'm sorry, but if you're going to sing Renegade, could you not sing Renegade? Because it it's my song. I want to sing it. So anyway, he gave me a friendly nod, and that was that. What that generated was the need to write songs. So I really was uncomfortable doing that, but I really wanted to say things, the kind of things that he was saying and things that were important to me. So I started writing songs. Right there and then, I started writing songs. Do you remember the first song you wrote? No, I don't. No, I don't. But I know that was a very important time in history. Because young people were learning that they had a voice and they started to use that voice. And if you think back to that, even if you look around you today, there's a lot of young people waiting and wanting change and they have a voice and they're using that voice. And I think I've seen this cycle twice now and I'm really happy to still be alive to see it again. I was chatting with Randy Bachman and Valdi separately on this podcast not that long ago and it's amazing how many people came through Winnipeg in the late 60s and early 70s that went on to have a singer-songwriter career. Winnipeg is a great place to plant seeds and harvest. It's still a great place to research and find and believe you can have a career in music because you can still get a gig in Winnipeg and play six nights in the same place. You don't have to move around. Three nights here, two nights there, whatever. So it fosters a lot of musicians and there's great players that come out of there. A few years ago, you released a two-disc, 21-track retrospective album, spotlighting your music as a singer-songwriter. And many musicians can go their whole lives and would be hard-pressed to compile that many songs on any kind of a retrospective. But you've managed to have a full acting career at the same time as being a singer-songwriter. So I'm interested in how the songs come to you. Sometimes the music comes first. Sometimes the lyrics come first, but mostly there are really significant incidents that happen in your life, either directly to you or indirectly, that affect you so deeply. Love's an easy one, right? Plagiarizing love is a wonderful thing. <laughs> yeah. But there are other things, and perhaps you may even find it in your catalog somewhere. You can go look it up. Go look at Lost Souls. Tom Jackson, Lost Souls. Listen to that. One of the most significant pieces of work I've ever written. It's a story about 215 kids that were buried in Kamloops. That's world-changing. So if you can find it, go for it. It's a video, too. You can watch it. Yeah. You want to watch it. I have seen it on YouTube, yes. And as a singer, you're very well known for the long-running Euron Carol Christmas concert tours for the Canadian food banks and other initiatives that you support. So how did that tradition get started? 1986, so you have to fast forward from 73. My life had changed. I'm not a poor man or I'm not an unsuccessful man, but my life had changed. And I found myself living in a hole in the ground in downtown Toronto, in a hole in the ground. I was addicted to drugs. I built that hole 
I built that crawl space on my own volition. I made those decisions. But one night, and you understand I was crazy, right? I got a wacky name. One night I get a visitor and the visitor says to me, he said, I'm going to help you, Tom. He said, I'm going to send you an angel that is worse off than you. And if you help that angel, I'm going to help you. I took the deal. I said, how will I find the angel? Will it have wings? And he said, no. So I went looking and I found that there were a lot of angels that were worse off than me. And it brought me here to you. I started clumsily to help my peers, people on the street, people in back alleys, people with no shoes, people with no socks, people with no place to sleep. But I found I wasn't that good at that. So I thought, okay, maybe I can find people who help people. And that was work. That was working. I found an organization called Council Fire, downtown Toronto. And there was a woman there, Millie Redmond was her name. And she was a, a member of the Order of Canada. You don't know what it's like to be in the presence of that kind of angel. They didn't have food hampers much in those days. The food banks just starting up. And she had a call out to the community because they were shy 500 hampers the year before. And I said, maybe I can help there. Maybe we're just going to buy the food, make the hampers. So I called some friends of mine who were musicians and actors, and we decided to put on this benefit show and had to figure out what we were going to call it because we were in a place called Heronia, and there was a song called the Huron Carol. We decided to call it the Huron Carol. On that day, on the show day, on the 17th of December, the place was packed. It was great. There was a bar there called the Silver Dollar. We called it the Buck. But the Buck had been closed down. We had no place to play. I approached the gentleman who owned the bar. We approached the city. There was a wonderful woman. Her name was Jane Harbury. She was a public relations person. They said, here's some toothbrushes. Go and, go and clean it up, and we'll give it to you for one night. It was a black tie event. We didn't raise much money, but the community heard about it. They heard about the people that Council Fire was going to help, and it was full. But we didn't raise much money. The next day, on the 18th of December, there were cars and trucks lined up as far as the eye could see with food to bring it to Council Fire. One of the reasons we're here today, me and you, is because there's people out there with no shoes, no socks, no bed, maybe no love. We're here to change that. And it's possible. Here on Carol, since that day, has generated more than $250 million dollars for social services, just like SOS. And we're going to change the world. We're going to change it today. Me and you. You know how we're going to do that? We're going to ask your listeners to call somebody, tell them they love them, and ask them to do the same. So let's say you have 10 listeners. Five minutes from now, we're going to have 20 people. I'm going to guess you have a lot more than 10. And it's a team. What we do is teamwork, right? And you're as big a part of that team as anybody else on the planet. You know why? Because when we're done, the world is going to change. It's going to change. We're going to save lives. The DNA of that is love. Very powerful message. And you've taken that message forward to where we are now with your program, Helping Kids Be Kids Again, a current fundraising campaign you have for the Red Cross with millions of children at risk in the Ukraine. I got my knowledge 
from Conrad Sauvier, who is the CEO of the Red Cross. I said, how can I help? What do we do from long distance? And who do we do it for? The children in Ukraine have no place to play. They live in bunkers. There's more than a million children that are displaced. How do we help them become children again? We have to find ways to do that. We have to find ways to keep them warm so that they'll live through the winter. How do we do that? The number one thing we have to do is we have to plagiarize love and find a way to help those who need help. And in my opinion, the Red Cross. To the Red Cross doesn't care what side of the fence you're on. The Red Cross cares if you're vulnerable. And if you're vulnerable, I'm going to help you. And I can say this to you. If you're brave enough to ask me for help, I don't care what your problem is. I really don't care. If you're brave enough to ask me for help, I can promise you that I can help you. Why? Because my resource is almost infinite. If it's not me, maybe it's my brother Bernie. Or maybe it's somebody brother Bernie knows. My resource, because I've been doing this for so long, is wide. It's global. I had a person in Brantford who was in trouble. And I got a call and I heard it. And so I called my friend Jerry Melstad at 1865, which was a men's shelter. And they called Fresh Start, who called somebody in Toronto, who called somebody in Brantford. And within a half hour, we had somebody knocking at that guy's door. You don't know how powerful the gift is. You don't know how valuable the gift is. If you help somebody and they pay it forward and they help somebody and they pay forward and they help somebody, that person they help might be your sister. Six degrees of separation. What SOS does, same thing. I bet if you volunteered at SOS, I'm gonna guess it wouldn't be long before you saw somebody you knew. Don't know the value of the gift. The gift is priceless, but it loses its value if you don't share it. When Today in BC continues, Tom Jackson beams up to Star Trek, co-stars in Sullivan's Crossing, and is made a companion of the Order of Canada. Discover what's happening around our province with todayinbc.com. Sign up today to get the latest news right to your inbox and never miss the news that's important to you and your family. From community news in your neighborhood to what's happening in our province, your source for daily news is todayinbc.com. I'm Peter McCulley. Today in BC is a Black Press Media podcast. Tom, you were ranked in the top 50 personalities in the first 50 years of television in Canada, and you've had some great roles, which we can talk about, but I'd like to know specifically about North of 60. It ran for six seasons. The show was well-written, well-acted, featured Indigenous actors and storylines. I discovered it recently in reruns. Great series. North of 60 was fantastic, and there were a lot of reasons for it, but mostly it gave us an opportunity to look through a window into real life in a First Nation community. And it just opened up our eyes and the richness and the characters and the, the smiles and the joy uh, that comes with all of those characters, both written and real. You couldn't compare it to anything. And it was groundbreaking. It brought along as a legacy a lot of young actors and young creators and writers and cable pullers. And if you want to be in this business, it's a show business. Learn how to pull a cable. Just start there. If you want to be in the business, learn it all. Just go out there and stay in the business, and you'll become successful. 
I didn't realize before I met you that you stand six foot five, which is a little taller than I am. So I apologize for squeezing you into this very small podcast booth. Has being a tall guy been any kind of an impediment or an advantage when you're considered for roles in TV or movies? I'll tell you two stories. One of them, my mother said this to me because I always walked with my head down. She said, if you got it, flaunt it, son, she says. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? She said, if you're going to study the cracks in the sidewalks all your life, you're never going to see how blue the sky is. And she went out and bought me a pair of two-inch heel cowboy boots. The other story was I was working on a project called Clear Cut, and I had to walk towards the other actor. And the other actor was Graham Greene, but I was too tall. So by the time I got close to him, I wouldn't fit in the frame. So they built a trench for me. <laughs> so I had to walk in a... Um, on the beach. So they dug a trench in the sand <laughs> until we got to be eye to eye. I wanted to ask you about a couple of acting credits that are on your IMDb page. I don't know if you've ever looked at it, but it's long. You had an opportunity to appear in an episode of Star Trek, which is my favorite. I grew up during that time and continue to watch it. I'm a fan. And did you ever grow up? No. Oh, good. Why okay, would I, carry why on. Would I do carry that? on. <laughs> That's why we're here today. <laughs> Tell us how that role came to you and perhaps you have a story about it. So I'm sitting with Graham again. He lived in Ontario at that time, and he had a really nice house with a pond out back that had geese and fish that he never ever saw. He never actually had fish. He'd sit out on the boat and cast out, and there was never fish, no fish in that pond. But we used to kid ourselves and talk about a lot of things and had this conversation about some of the things that we'd done and what would be the one thing that we both would have liked to do, and that was play on Star Trek. Really? Yeah. So I'm sitting at home. And my wonderful friend and agent calls me, and she said, I just got a call from Star Trek. I got my attention. This is a Friday. So they want to know if you can get on a plane and be prepared to be on camera by Monday. Yeah. Beam so, me up. Beam me up. <laughs> and I got on the plane, and I started thinking to myself, well, now, why would they call me on a Friday to be on set on a Monday? Oh, somebody got fired. <laughs> so they... Picked me out of the air, and I got on the Starship Enterprise, and I was sitting in the captain's chair. And in those days, cell phones were the size of shoes, big square things. So I borrowed a guy's cell phone, and I phoned Graham and said, you're never going to believe where I am. That's an excellent story. Lots of movies, lots of actors that you've been involved with over the years, and some very well-known ones, Eric Bana, Olivia Wilde, Chris Christopherson, Sissy Spacek, one of my favorites. I did want to ask you about one in particular. I was going to ask for a different reason because he's always working. But now I'm going to ask because you and he have the same voice, and that is Liam Neeson. Oh, Liam. Liam is a wonderful man. We didn't spend a lot of time together, but the time that we spent together was hugely valuable. I still stand touch with him. I find out where he's at, and he's, oh, I'm shooting some caper off in Switzerland or something. I'll be done. I'll call you back. But... He's a wonderful man. He has similar concerns on how the world turns, so to speak, and he engages. And so we found some common ground. And the Cold Pursuit being the film that you'd have been referencing, the future holds more engagement with myself and Liam. I'm not at liberty to say exactly what that is, but there's a possibility we're going to build a, the, the industry wants to build a franchise around our two characters. So there may be one, two, three movies yet in the works. Two yeah. big guys on 
I guess on the big screen. I was going to say the little screen, but it'd be a big screen. You have to get a bigger television. That's as good a reason. I keep telling my wife that we need a bigger television. Keep on. Stay on it. It'll work. (laughs) Well, we have something in common, Tom, and that is that we both spend a summer in Shuby Park along the Shubenacadie River in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. I was a teenager working on carving out a hiking trail, and you were there filming Sullivan's Crossing, which I understand just got renewed for a second season. Yeah, Sullivan's Crossing, I believe, touch wood, has a grand future, and there's a number of reasons for that. One of them is that it's very popular here in Canada on CTV, and if you want to watch it, you can watch it on ctv.ca, and it's picked up by CW in the U.S. It's going to start broadcasting in the U.S. and internationally in November, and we're starting this coming July to shoot the second season. And the series is based on a number of books written by Robin Carr, who wrote Virgin River, if there's Virgin River fans out there. And she wrote five books. So I'm thinking, I might have four more seasons. (laughs) Here's a great thing about working on Sullivan's Crossing. It's not just working on what I call a television prescription. I think it's what the world needs right now. It's something that makes us feel good. It touches the heart and makes you healthy. Makes you happy. Happy is healthy. This is a good thing. It's really cast and crew. The amount of TLC that goes into this production is just amazing. TLC. Tender, loving care. We need some of that health and happiness after the last two or three years. We do. We do. I had a call with 27 students in St. John's. And uh, I think it was called First Light. It was a religious organization, but it was an arts organization. So there are 27 students when COVID had hit at the other end, and we were talking about what this blank canvas was going to look like because we had a new opportunity. Some of them were sculptors, some of them were singers, songwriters, scriptwriters. But we decided that at the end of the day, what they wanted, and I know you're probably going to get tired of this word, but they wanted to put love on the canvas. This is where this idea is call somebody and tell them you love them came from. Because there was 27 of us. And within a minute, there were 54 of us. And then within five minutes, there was 108 of us. So within five minutes, the world had changed. So COVID maybe brought us around to understand a lot of things. I know I figured out what those white tablets were next to the washing machine. And I didn't know the back room of the house was painted purple. So it taught us a lot of things, but it also taught us how to care for one another again, how to be right in front of the person who's right in front of you. Although maybe in some cases, the head's down a little bit into the phone thing, but, but even then, a little, hey. Yeah. I think we had to be pulled apart in order to understand that we needed to be put back together. Yeah. I'm with you, Peter. You've been honored many times over for your work that you've done and been named to the Companion of the Order of Canada as well. I'm quoting you. I've said many times that it's not about the award, it's about the reward. Yeah, it's simply not about the what, it's the why. Yeah, the award, got it. Why did you get it? If we're about just the what, you'd probably get tired of carrying that trophy around. But if your why is strong enough to make you cry, strong enough to make you help, others, then you'll be more successful than you can ever dream. It wasn't by coincidence that you're here. 
maybe the, the bus almost hit you. Do you know why the bus didn't hit you? Because I needed to be here. You needed to be here. You were destined for greatness. So let me ask listeners, did, did the bus miss you? I didn't mean did you miss the bus. If the bus missed you, you were likely at some point out in the sea trying to reach the shore, but somehow invisible. But you made it to the shore. So what does that say? That means you're destined for greatness. So let's find out what your greatness is. Let's find out what your destiny is. Decide for yourself what it is you want to do other than what you're doing right now. And make a plan. That's the first step on the path. The next step will determine your courage. Empathy takes courage. You had mentioned you were on a call with the kids in St. John's, my favorite city in the world, actually, during its start of COVID. And I know that you've had to spend a lot of time with the youth. Was it a bit of a surprise when you were appointed Chancellor of Trent University in Ontario back in 2009? It's an arts university, so that certainly would have been in your bailiwick. It wasn't expected, but I wasn't overly surprised because the people who had suggested me were all friends of mine and they were associated with Trent. So the deck was stacked. But that being said, I guess everything, and that's too trite to say, everything happens for a reason. But let me say that to be involved in the convocation and to engage in real time, as brief as it might seem, but real time with world changers is very inspiring. It's very powerful. There's a thing that brings light to a darkness. And I don't mean, oh, it's going to sparkle. There's things that happen in your world when you're with a room of people. and The world can be dark out there. And something's happening in this room that's bringing it light. But you can't see it. You feel it. And when at convocation, when in front of and being in the presence of the greatness of all these young people who are like-minded, who understand that they're the future. It's really awe-inspiring. The spin-off for that for me was that water studies at Trent University is the flag. They're second to none in water studies on the globe. I had the opportunity, not officially with Trent, but some colleagues I called upon at Trent. But when the big deep horizon spill happened in the Gulf of Mexico, I went down determined to find out what the cleanup was going to do to the ocean. What was going to happen to the ocean after everything was cleaned up? It was an eye-opening experience. It was quite interesting to be a six-foot-five Indian with a braid, never mind an old man, south of the Mason-Dixon line, nosing around. When I first stopped, there was a guy named Huckabee, and nosing around, I asked, you got a coffee? He said, no, we don't have coffee here. What are you doing here? We had a conversation. And the guy that was standing behind him in 34-degree weather went a quarter of a mile to bring me back a coffee. A quarter of a mile in 34-degree weather. I now understand what Southern hospitality is. And I say this because it's my DNA. You just have to realize that the little bits of kindness that you might be exploring to help someone else might save their life. So how powerful that might be. And wear that like a crown. Tom, what lessons have you learned through your career that have had a significant impact on you personally and professionally? If part of your DNA is helping others, you're guaranteed success. It doesn't matter what field you're in. 
If that's part of your makeup, you will be more successful in your field than you can ever dream of. That's the one thing that I've learned. The second thing is you can teach that. The second thing is people watch when you're doing things, particularly if you're in the arts world. They're watching you. You don't have to teach a child kindness. You only need to be kind. And maybe their brother and sister sees it. Maybe they like it. And maybe their parents see it and they like it. Maybe they duplicate that. Maybe the community sees it. Maybe the nation sees it. That's actor-musician Tom Jackson on this edition of Today in BC. If you have suggestions or comments, send a voice message to podcast at blackpress.ca. You may be part of our podcast mailbag segment. You'll find Today in BC podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, iHeart, and Google Podcasts. CanadianEvergreen.com is your trusted news source for all things green, offering up-to-date news and stories from Canada's booming cannabis industry. Content you can trust from Black Press Media.